Let us pray together. Living and loving God, we ask for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit upon us, your congregation, here today. Help us to see new things in your word so that we might live in new ways. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is night, and King Herod is pacing in his dark palace, nervously tugging at his braided beard. Yesterday, he received word of a strange caravan of foreigners from the east arriving in Jerusalem. And ever since then, he's been waiting for them to come request an audience. What exotic gifts have they brought to give him? Why? Why the delay? Herod the Great, you see, is the Roman Empire's puppet king of Judea. Most Jews despise him. Everybody is afraid of him. Everybody. Because everybody knows about Herod's brutal habit of killing anyone. Rivals, a whole village, even his own children and his own, parent, his own wives. Anyone who gets in the way of Herod having his way. The king's informers soon bring word that these strange Gentile travelers are magi, stargazers, scholars of the heavens above. And for many moons now, God has been drawing them steadily over deserts and across mountain peaks here to Jerusalem. And now these magi are asking everybody, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star and we've come to worship him. And this news of a child king sets Herod's heart racing in a panic. Who is this rival to his throne? There is only one king of the Jews. His name is Herod. Herod quickly sends for Jerusalem's priests and scholars of God's scriptures and asks them, where is God's anointed one, the Messiah, to be born? Well, in Bethlehem, they tell him. Reading from the scroll of Micah. Herod then urgently summons the Magi. And when they enter, everything about them is strange, exotic. The cut of their robes, the color of their skin, the angle of their eyes, and especially this story 
they have about following a star. The Magi's careful study of the heavens has brought them all the way here to Jerusalem, but they're still nine miles away from their new king. Nine miles away. How will God now guide them these last nine miles to Bethlehem? Well, through what Herod, of all people, has learned in Scripture. Verse 8, then Herod sends them. Herod sends him to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring word so that I too may go and worship him. And then later, nine miles later, it's the loud blast of camels snorting cold air through their nostrils that first alerts Mary and Joseph that they now have some very strange guests at their doorstep. And then in come these three wise men, delirious with joy, falling on their knees to worship the child and humbly pressing their foreheads down on the dirty floor. And then they open up their treasure chests and offer the child their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Friends, here on this Epiphany Sunday morning, we are celebrating the coming of Christ's light into the world. Cradled in Mary's arms is the Savior sent by God to scatter the proud and bring down the mighty, to lift up the lowly and fill the hungry with good things. And in his new kingdom, justice, healed relationships, and deep shalom will abound. In this child, God's light is dawning. A light so radiant that no darkness, no darkness can ever overcome it. I think what makes the Bible so wonderfully life-giving is that we can delight in stories like this one this morning about the three wise men as we can delight in these stories as children and then as we go through life and as we grow older we can begin to contemplate their deeper meanings as we move through life as we become perhaps a parent, as we go through a crisis like Three Mile Island or September 11th, as we lose a spouse or a beloved parent, as we learn that a loved one is gay, as we change careers or face some deep, deep sense of personal failure, 
all of these life experiences can also be invitations to go deeper in Scripture. And what we want here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church is for all of us as we move through life together to be making these deeper shifts in Scripture. Some people don't. But this is our calling, to shift deeper into these Scriptures so that we can discover, as Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is indeed living and active. And as I've mentioned before, let me give you some examples of what this looks like. How about the story of Jonah? What a whale of a story the story of Jonah is, including an epic vomiting scene. We can delight in that as children. But later we begin to realize that it's also, oh my goodness, it's a story about all the ways that we run away from God. And then we discover it's also a story about the all-embracing circle of God's love that goes out to embrace even our enemies in Iraq. Did I say Iraq? I meant Nineveh. At first, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is just a wild tale about three guys hanging out in their asbestos suits in a fiery furnace. It's a good story. And then, lo and behold, we realize it's also about faithful people resisting the empire. Refusing to bow down to the gods and the idols of Babylon. In the same way, as kids, who of us wasn't completely captivated by this story of three wise guys on a perilous journey all the way to Bethlehem, complete with saddle bags overflowing with treasures. Cool. That's a great story. But though we never want to set aside our childlike wonder, don't ever set that aside. We also want to begin to make deeper shifts in Scripture. And let me share with you three things that I notice in this story. The first of all, the first thing about this story is that the Magi are Gentiles. Outsiders from far, far, far away. And Matthew very intentionally includes this story right at the front of his gospel. Why does he do that? He seems to want to tell us that even from Jesus' birth, God is working to bring in the whole world into God's family. This is the story about all the nations being drawn into God's saving love and light as foretold long ago in Isaiah 60 that we heard today. Consider this. 
Matthew's Gospel begins in chapter 2 with Gentile wise men coming to Jesus and then ends in chapter 28 with the risen Jesus sending out the eleven to make disciples of all the nations. In Christ, God is going global. And the arrival of the Magi symbolizes what Paul later puts into words in Ephesians 3. Through Christ, all people now have access. Did you hear that word? Now have access to God. A a second thing we notice in in this story is this beautiful interplay between Scripture and creation. Celtic Christians are very helpful here. They tell us that we may come to know God through two books and not just one. Through the book of Scripture and through the book of creation. Ever read that book? And in this story, God uses the splendor of the natural world, of the stars, to lead the Magi to sense God's presence. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 20, when he says, Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that God has made. Through the Magi's study of the heavens, God helps them to see that something unprecedented is about to happen. But their knowledge is still incomplete, leaving them still nine miles away from Bethlehem. And so God speaks to them through Scripture to guide them home and speaks to us through Scripture in the same way. A third thing that I notice in this story is that, wow, it just crackles with political electricity, doesn't it? Did you get zapped this week as you were reading it? Who will we serve and obey? The empire's puppet or our prince of peace? To whom will we pledge our allegiance? In whom will we find our ultimate security? And I don't know if you caught it, but at the end of our story about the Magi, it ends with a moment of crisis, a turning point, where the story could have gone that way or this way. Having worshipped their new king, having glimpsed the new kingdom, Will the Magi now go home and live their lives the same old way? Will we? That night, God comes to them powerfully in a dream. 
Don't go back to Jerusalem, the seat of earthly and religious powers. Go home by a very different road. And when they rise, when they wake up, that's what they choose to do. And that's what we too must choose to do in our own lives. Return home by another road. The Jesus road. And following Him means following a different star and traveling home by a very different road than other people in our world are traveling. Let me close this morning by drawing our attention to Micah 6.8, the verse that we have chosen to guide our congregational life in this brand new year before us. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's uh, start learning that together. I'm going to line it out, and why don't you repeat after me? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As Glenn Roth helped us to see and to hear at our last congregational meeting, this verse contains a beautiful question that we want to be asking this whole year here at East Chestnut Street Church. What does the Lord require of us? What does the Lord require of us? In a time of silence now, let us open our hearts wide to the Holy Spirit and let us begin our listening and our imagining and our dreaming together. In 2014, what is God inviting us to know? To do and to be. Amen.